We've been doing some parody infomercials on TikTok lately. We might have to add a, a parody. Oh, to I parody. gotta see those. Oh, where are they? Yeah, they're hilarious. Yeah, they're on uh, on my TikTok. So we've been doing them every day about like pulling things out of our pockets and just like hilarious, random, obviously not common scenarios, but you know, uh, showing people the depth of the pockets, and they've been people have really been enjoying them because fake pockets suck. Precisely, fake pockets suck. Yeah. How do you collaborate on that stuff? It's definitely really on the fly. I mean, our, our neighbor here is doing on the some fly. Really- <laughs> <laughs> Pants our, puns. I love it. <laughs> our neighbor here is doing some renovation on their uh, bathroom and they, they took a bathtub out and seeing an opportunity there. I jumped in the bathtub and we started filming. <laughs> and we had him in the jeans and we're and it was like, imagine this incredibly common scenario. You are taking a bath in an abandoned bathtub in the woods and you forgot your shampoo and conditioner. And then we pan over and he's in the bathtub wearing jeans and he pulls out full-size shampoo and conditioner from the pockets. And it's like, well, with slow jeans, that's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking too, you could work with the first jeans with no waste. <laughs> you want a job? Yeah. <laughs> Is there a particular pronunciation to slow jeans? Nope. Slow, it. you got it. <laughs> who you ask. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's part of part of what we did on purpose. I'm half Scandinavian, so I knew that it would inspire, you know, inspire a little bit of debate. In those countries, it's, it's kind of a slangy term, but each of them kind of take it a little differently. So we thought it would, you know, add to the fun. Yeah, only the good half. <laughs> I did a lot of research about the company and uh, it's, it's an amazing concept and you had some success raising some money for it so far. So Marshall, you're a career marketer and Christian, from what I can tell, you just use TikTok a lot. <laughs> <laughs> tell us a bit about the background, how this started and how you guys got together. Uh, I was already in the in the fashion world. Um, I'm kind of uh, been a serial founder for the last few years, uh, kind of hopping between fashion and technology, and uh, basically was just running an operation, a uh, super small startup at the time. Uh, Marshall reached out on LinkedIn, sent me a message and said, hey, you don't know me, I don't know you, but I like what you're working on. Do you have any spots? And uh, at the time, we were like right in the middle of the pandemic, and it just was not the time that we were looking to hire. You know, our runway was horrible, and we were looking at it, and I was like, man, I can't take anyone on right now. So, guys, sorry, Marshall. And actually, it wasn't even that easy. I don't even think I got back to him the first time. He was persistent. And yeah, you know, he just uh, reached out again, like six, seven months later, and was finally just like, hey, you know what? I'm going to send you an Uber Eats gift card, and we're going to have coffee, and we're going to chat. And uh, yeah, that was on LinkedIn. We never met each other before that. And um, basically it's, uh, you know, we relationship took off. I said, hey, look, I don't have a lot to offer you right now, but if you want to live the super stereotypical remote startup life, then sure, you know, hop on board. And uh, that was about what, eight months ago now. And, you know, yeah. the rest, you know, kind of has been history. Convinced him to move up to Canada into a big old startup house. And uh, yeah. Well, that's the message, right? Uh, persistence gets you right to the C-suite. No time flat. <laughs> they said it wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy idea, but it just might work. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Well, that's that's a great uh, experience when you can just kind of you know meet up with somebody and develop a chemistry that makes you want to bring them into this particular intimate level and create this business that already has reached a level now where 
you got some money to work with in terms of how to market the jeans, how to distinguish yourself in a very crowded market, I guess it's safe to say. I keep thinking now, you know, everywhere you see is the word fintech and there should be much more consideration of fash tech, yeah, which yeah, I guess you guys are. You're a fash tech duo. You know, that's that's really interesting you say that is because, you know, I feel like the, the entire fashion industry has just been stagnant for almost 100 years, really. And in a lot of ways, the fashion industry worked better more than 100 years ago. It was that model where clothes were made for people that, you know, mass production, especially in fashion, didn't really come along until the 50s, 60s. And so previously, you know, you go to your tailor and, you know, you would get your, you know, you get your suit made and it was made for you. And there was reasonable, you know, prices and there were so many of them that, you know, you could try different people. And it's just been stagnant. You know, you have these massive companies that they do 150,000 unit orders. They throw them on the shelves, try and sell them as quickly as possible and burn what they don't sell. And this is our size set. If you don't fit in it, you know, it sucks for you. And, you know, so we kind of got together and we were like, man, how do we fix this? How do we challenge these companies that have just been kind of running this system? And how do we kind of inject what is happening in every other industry, the modernization of all these other industries, you know, the technological advancements in all these different industries, and how do we inject it at a systemic and a fundamental level into the fashion industry, which just hasn't had any movement in a very long time. And so, like you're saying, it's a big challenge, you know, to hop into, but I think it's one that's just right for the picking. And we're hoping that, you know, we can open some doors for, for some other people as well. Well, that's the real idea, right? Because I'm sure this is a pretty prevalent idea in terms of revolutionizing an industry that needs a, an upgrade. It's one thing to think of the idea and another to create a prototype and create the system. So explain the time frame between the brainchild and then actually having a prototype system to put into place. You know, this whole thing happened by accident. You know, I went to a thrift shop about a year ago and I bought a pair of jeans. Uh, you know, thought they looked really nice, looked good. And then, you know, it's COVID times, no, you know, no changing rooms, figured, all right, 10 bucks, might as well buy it. And took them home, put them on the next day and realized that they were women's jeans. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. They fit good enough. Until I was walking to the metro station, I tried to put my wallet in the pocket and the pocket was about two inches deep. It was horrible. Just well, even the there was pocket. a pocket on there. I usually don't even have pockets at all. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so I was, you know, walking there is the middle, you know, it's still snowing out. And I was like, you know what? I don't know who I want to talk to about this, but I was going to post it on TikTok. And so I just posted on TikTok. And I was like, hey, uh, ladies, uh, why do you guys not have pockets? These suck. <laughs> and uh, it went super viral. And people were like, he gets it. And it just dawned on me about six months later, I was talking to Marshall and I was like, Marshall, all the traction that we've had has come from that TikTok. Why don't we just make jeans that don't have these problems? Let's just ask people what they want. Like, you know, fashion industry has always been about here's the trend. Here you are. Here you are, people. We've made the trends for you and we've paid this celebrity a lot of money to wear them so that they validate our trend. Why don't we just do the opposite? Why don't we ask people, tell us exactly what you want us to make? And so we made a TikTok. We said, hey, describe your dream jeans. Here's a form. Leave a comment. Come on our website and tell us what you want. And by the end of the first week, we had 700,000 individual suggestions. Wow. Yeah. You talk about using your social media platform for a real viable purpose, apart from just, you know, explaining what you just ate. <laughs> yeah. You, when you can create a company based upon an extraordinary crowdsource from a large platform, that's a great place to start. 
And of course, now I'm wondering, you know, if a woman's jeans are button fly, are they on the other side of your fly? Uh, we're we're sticking with zippers for the time being. <laughs> yes, but, thank uh... <laughs> you. Very mercifully so. Well done. I never got the allure of button fly apart from like, okay, it's different. Let's see if we can sell these. And enough people bought them and wow. But yeah, they never seem practical to me, especially if there's any urgency involved. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. So, and how versatile, speaking of versatility, is the model itself? Can someone say, look, I want a flare leg. I want more room in the thigh. How specific can you get when it comes to matching a customer's body type? So the way that we're basically solving the kind of mass production of it is they're not essentially made to order as into your exact body. What we've done is we've taken the traditional size set, which with most brands, that was usually about 25 to 30 sizes. And we've just extended it in every direction. And so, you know, for us, we have more inseam lengths, we have more waist sizes, we have more shapes. So we have different options within your thighs, different options within the hip areas. And what we do is we collect your measurements and we match you to the closest size possible within that large size set. So it still allows, allows us some standardization of manufacturing so that we're not, you know, making 10,000 individual sizes, but it allows us to basically match people to a size that's about 97% what it would be if we were taking a tailor and measuring you exactly. And then we've basically built into the design some flexibility with, uh, we have an internal and external gusset system, which has added a little bit of extra fabric in the hip area and extra fabric in the thigh area, also some reinforcement in the thigh area for friction. And so those additional gussets basically allow us to make up any issues you know that we had maybe in the sizing if you're an inch wrong here an inch wrong there it's kind of our fallback we have a prototype here that's supposed to be a 29 waist and you know it fits on my girlfriend who's a 24 and one of our other guys who's a 36 you know almost like 13 inch difference in the waist and it works. So that's kind of what we've, we've done in that in terms of styles, like you're saying flair and whatnot, it's going to be kind of like building a subway sandwich. You're going to come on the site. You're going to pick your color. You're going to pick your cut. You're going to get sized. We're going to tell you, Hey, this is the size we recommend. Do you like them tighter? Do you like them looser? How do you like them to fit? And by the end of it, by the time you get to the checkout, you're the one that's basically built these jeans out and they're going to be sent to production from there. And speaking of different options in the thigh area, welcome to the successfully funded podcast brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we go further, uh, fans of the podcast know we have a few uh, bits and pieces of our disclaimer to read. KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete, or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. Now, for the full disclaimer, please head over to our podcast page, 
which is successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. My name is Doug French. I'm your host, and I'm here with the co-founders of Slow Genes. That's S-L and O with a slash through it, and we'll talk about where that came from in a moment. Slow Genes provide functional, high-quality, sustainably made clothes that are built to fit all bodies, no matter your age, shape, gender, size, or background. And I'm here with CEO Christian Hansen and CMO Marshall Conley. Welcome to you both. Hey, Doug. Thanks very much for having us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's great to talk to you. And you are coming to us from the uh, epicenter of the fleur de lis, I'm guessing, Montreal, Canada. <laughs> that is correct. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of fleur de lis myself. My last name is French. And so I've had a love affair with fleur de lis for a long time. <laughs> anyway, so we're talking about slow genes. There's a lot of meaning behind that name. I think there's a Scandinavian reference there as well, but there's also a reference to why does fashion have to be so fast? And so how does the name fit your overall mission statement? Initially, we were thinking a uh, human clothing company. You know, the idea was to build clothes for humans. You know? And, uh, you know, one of our propositions is we're not creating gendered clothing. You know, we think that the gendering genes is kind of a, you know, a senseless act. That was the, the plan until we got a comment saying, you know, it made someone feel as if the clothes were made out of humans um and it was a quick pivot from there yeah, really a real fast. quick pivot from I, there i think it lasts about three days <laughs> right. and um, of course uh with the you know the persistent responses of no comment put some people off <laughs> sure yeah it's a so. funny story too though on that you know we're, we're actually incorporated as the human clothing company so on human like on documents uh we still are referred to as human clothing company all right so it's a, it's a dba essentially it is a dba yeah we were we were set we were like yep this is it this is brilliant and then the, yeah, yeah no really <laughs> really cool logo made and everything and then that comment put a quick end to that so you know, a huge part of our narrative was that we were, you know, building a revolution against fast fashion. And what more perfect uh, name than than slow? The antithesis of fast fashion. So uh, we landed on the name slow, not fast fashion. You know, kind of adding to the, the humor of the name is that in some Scandinavian languages, uh, it means dull or lazy, you know, boring. And again, you know, we find awesome. ourselves from a marketing <laughs> perspective, you're just like win, win, win. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we found it hilariously ironic. The Chevy Nova of jeans, right? Remember that one? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's how we got here and we've, we've been here ever since. Well, I, well, I'm interested also in the, in the gender fluid aspect of it to kind of make them just universal garments that aren't necessarily targeted for one gender or the other, which definitely seems to, to fit the current zeitgeist. To what extent does that discussion factor into your marketing, if at all? I think it's, it's huge for us. Um, you know, we're not pretending to be symbols of, say, any form of LGBTQ movement or anything like that. But if we can make shopping easier for people and make it so that there are people out there who reached out to us and they're like, I don't like shopping for clothes because I don't necessarily like having to go to the one side of the store or the other side of the store or one side of the site or the other side of the site. I just want to wear clothes, man. And for us, I'm like, yeah, fair enough. You know, if you want to rock some pink bell bottoms, who am I to tell you you can or you can't? Or who am I to label them one way or another? We want to make 
super good, super good, you know, quality clothing that fits everyone. And because we're based on measurements, I don't care where those measurements come from. You know, we make a 3D image of your body, basically, when you scan uh, yourself in using our, our technology, there's no gender on those 3D images, they're just wireframes. So I don't care, your genes are going to fit no matter how you identify, no matter how you want to identify. And I don't feel like it's our place to, you know, tell people one way or another. And that's really resonated with a lot of people. You know, we have several thousand people in our Discord community that that's the main reason that they're, you know, so gung-ho about this project is, look, someone is listening to us and no major brand has taken a firm stance in, in saying we're not going to gender clothing. That's something that is definitely at, at the core of what we're trying to achieve and what we're going to continue to to use as one of our core narratives. Have you been able to do any market research in terms of what your customers have said about any experience when they've had difficulty finding standard genes that are particularly gendered one way or another? Because I would think, and you're looking for something that flatters your body, you might decide that neither a, quote, man's gene or a, or a woman's gene is particularly useful in either way, fits well or makes you feel comfortable or makes you feel proud to walk around in them. How much of your success do you ascribe, do you think, to speaking to that community in terms of creating an opportunity that so far uh, hadn't existed? The, the narrative is kind of all in the same, even with, you know, size inclusivity, because for the longest time, you know, we could say the same thing about plus sizes, you know, plus sizes uh, for the, you know, were just kind of stuck in the back corner and they typically weren't designed to be flattering and they were just basically designed to cover people. And in the same way that, you know, people who were kind of just thrown into that category of plus sizes, um, it didn't particularly matter whether you, you know, wanted male jeans per se or women's jeans per se, it was plus sizes. And there hadn't really been any movement in that regard either. And so I attribute almost all of our success to speaking to those different groups of people and saying, what is wrong with your current shopping process? And tell us what is wrong with buying plus size clothing. And we received hundreds of thousands, literally without exaggeration, of comments, of, of uh, polls, of uh, people sending us emails and DMs and basically just saying, this is everything wrong with this brand. This is everything wrong with the buying process for uh, people who identify as trans. This is everything that's wrong with, you know, the buying process when I buy from, you know, this particular plus size brand or this one is never in stock. And we built our entire model to ensure that we're not doing any of those things. So I would say basically without the identification of basically everybody, without listening to people, we would not be sitting here right now talking to you. You could really tap into a real uh, emotional response that will, I would think, create the holy grail of, of startups, which is, you know, repeat customers. Yeah, the, the feedback loop that, um, you know, we've been building on is invaluable. You always hear the, you know, at the end of these phone calls, you know, st stick around for a survey. And yeah. uh, I mean, we have an instant feedback loop on everything we do. If we have an idea, you know, we can post it on TikTok and instantly know whether that idea is going to be received well or not. So that has been ultimately one of the most valuable assets we have. And I want to talk a lot about that too, because as younger startup entrepreneurs, am I right in assuming that essentially your lifetime and social media are basically concurrent? You guys are natives and know a lot about how to manipulate your social media platforms, how to use TikTok, how to get instant feedback 
how to encourage people to respond and get a lot of engagement and really speak to your customer base in, a, in ways that just were never possible before. Listen, if you engage people in, uh, directly and ask them what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong, especially with a large platform, you can get a pretty strong consensus of how your customer base is going to act, uh, what they want and what their stress behavior is when they're not getting it. How do you feel your experience with these platforms has informed your marketing and your design and your, your business practices? I, I think it's definitely helped. I mean, when people ask us, you know, we've been on a couple of podcasts specific to like, how do you replicate this? And, you know, how do you get viral on TikTok and these kinds of things? And, and one of the number one things I always say is be on the platform. It, it sounds so simple, but the reality is uh, it's such a fast moving world. You know, what is popular on Monday is no longer popular on Friday. And so, you know, living on those platforms for the last, you know, 10 plus years, um, you know, it definitely is, is a massive part of what we've been able to do. But the, you know, the agility of it is is just unprecedented. And that's what we've really um, seen as the biggest selling point for, you know, investing our time um, into this, into learning as much as we possibly can. You know, for, for myself, I, I was not really good at TikTok when I first started. I posted I mean who is? I get it. Yeah, you gotta you gotta yeah. put in your ten thousand hours and yeah, exactly. It took a lot because it was a brand new monster. You know, I understood Instagram, I understood, you know, Facebook, I understood those ones. And then TikTok showed up and I didn't really join right away. I joined pretty late. And I joined in the middle of the pandemic because I was bored and the first probably 30, 40 videos I posted were awful, horrible. And, you know, it took a lot a of box learning. set of those yeah. is available in the gift shop as you leave. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, they're, they're somewhere. I never want to see them again, but they're somewhere. So I would say, to be honest, there was a big learning curve, but it's like learning to drive an 18 wheeler. It helps if you know how to drive a car. So you know, we learned on Instagram. We learned on these other platforms. We learned the basis of consumer psychology via social media. And then it was just about how do you apply that in a new medium? You know, and TikTok was that new medium. And we've been learning and perfecting and we're still trying to get better. Yeah. And TikTok is also presenting a lot of opportunities because its algorithm helps you build audiences a lot faster. It's really focused on making things go viral, offering you the chance to go viral. And once you go viral, it kind of builds on itself in a way that the other platforms haven't quite figured out yet. It's also interesting, too. I've talked to a lot of Canadians who love using TikTok because it's like the only social media platform that isn't owned by the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I haven't heard that one because, to be honest, I, I don't know about their current owners sometimes either. But, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, they've been good to us, so I, I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> but you're right with the algorithm. You know, the reality is I estimate that we've probably done three to $5 million in free advertising via TikTok. I mean, we have done something that potentially, I, I don't know for certain, but potentially has never been done before in the sense that we gained 100,000 individual unique people on a wait list. We raised $370,000 through equity crowdfunding, and we've got over 250,000 unique visitors on our website in the last six months and over 25 million views. And we've spent $0 on ads. Not a single yeah. <laughs> piece of that traffic has been paid. I haven't even put a quarter into paid advertising. And we have a wait list that has revenue potential upwards of $10 million. And that's all exclusively from one TikTok profile. So is that the kind of data that makes equity crowdfunding investors uh, turn their heads? Because you've got this uh, reservoir of future revenue just waiting to be fulfilled? 
Well, Marshall could talk more on the email strategy for sure, because that's yeah. his bread and butter um, in terms of speaking to those people in different mediums. But it, it, in terms of speaking to equity crowdfunding investors, I think the number one thing we learned is don't speak to them like investors. Yeah. And that was something that was very counterintuitive to everything that I had done previously. You know, I was very fortunate to kind of go through the initial kind of entrepreneur life. I had done the VC funding. I had gone through all of those pitches. You, you know, you walk into a boardroom with venture capitalists and they want to know everything. They want risk analysis. They want, you know, projections. They want forecasts. They want complicated, you know, economic breakdowns of everything, how you're going to spend the money. The average equity crowdfunding investor they didn't go to business school. They want to know who are you, what is your idea, and why should they give you money to try and make your idea happen? And so I said, we're not making a pitch deck the way that you normally would make a pitch deck. We made our pitch deck on WeFunder. It's a story. I started it out and I told the story and I finished it off with trying to explain in the most basic terms, the risks without using the jargon and try to break down what we felt our value proposition was and why we were the ones that were going to basically be able to create that value proposition. And I strongly believe that that's why we were so successful on our platform like WeFunder. And we've been told by about probably half of our community that we are their first investment ever in anything. And, wow. you know, for, for these different people, they believe in what we are trying to do, you know, at the core, and they've never had that feeling that we're listening to them. And we're trying to take the time to explain this to them. And so I think rather than just looking at that list and going, holy, that is a lot of people that want this product. They feel like we're genuinely there to walk them through this process and that we want to succeed together. And what we say a lot is we are community owned, we are community driven, and we are built by and for the community that we're just receiving that feedback. And we don't ever want to be, you know, one of these brands is owned by billionaires and, and whatnot. So that's where I, I think has, has really been, you know, our biggest bread and butter. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. You're kind of innovators of the, the pitch talk generation. Um, <laughs> but I think it helps also that you chose this product that is relatable, universally recognizable. The concept is very easy to communicate. Marshall as the marketer, in terms of distinguishing yourself in this huge fashion space, when you talk about the size of the market you're trying to compete for, what has been the biggest hurdle in terms of explaining why your genes are different, why your process is different? As far as your narrative for trying to distinguish yourself in a very crowded space, what are the high points that you are always sure to hit? You know, I'm not sure we've had a super difficult time distinguishing, you know, why, you know, our product is, you know, different from, you know, what other companies are offering. So you're, you don't serve much of a purpose at all with the company is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I think it's been a, it's been a little bit of a cakewalk. <laughs> <laughs> you're really, you're really going the extra mile to explain <laughs> your worth to Christian as how much he relies on you. <laughs> it's it's been easy and you know we have a lot of people doing a lot of the heavy lifting for us every time we log on to tiktok you know you can't you can't make a tiktok and talk about jeans or pockets or problems with fashion without the comment section being populated by people tagging us it happens 10 to 50 times a day almost i'd say and especially on a good day a lot of our uh, establishing a narrative comes from the community so you know just as much as we are community owned and a community built brand a lot of our marketing department is out there in the community just spreading the word i'm not sure if that's a perfect answer to your question no that's fine in fact in this time in history we also spend a lot of time 
with entrepreneurs who are trying to build a very social presence in a very unsocial time, an isolating time. Yeah. And uh, it, it pays to have a product that at least at some level will sell itself. It's easy to say, look, we'll make these great jeans for you and you can afford them and they'll last and you'll look good in them. I mean, in, in this case, I would imagine the first adopters are right there with you. But now that you have some money to work with and you're looking to scale, how do you see that message expanding or changing to try and reach people who might need a little bit more convincing as to how your process works? For us, I don't think we've even touched the surface on the different communities of people that we can basically build product for. You know, we are not worried about launch one, two, or three, because, you know, we have about 100,000 captive people who are opening our emails, who are there right with us. You know, we're going to do about 20,000 units this first launch. We're hoping to do about 40 to 50 in the next and hopefully continue to serve the rest of that wait list between those first three launches. But what we're thinking about marketing wise is what happens after that third launch? Because people don't buy a new pair of jeans every month. Now we'd love them to, but they don't. And that's okay. But what we're looking at is what are the other people, you know, what are the other groups of people that don't really fit into clothes? Like, for example, you know, I, I was a hockey player growing up. I lived with, you Isn't know, that, yeah, don't you have to be? I mean, is that <laughs> yeah, it's part of it. You know, it's, it's actually requirement for our passport. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's our civic duty, you know. Um, you know, I had a lot of guys in my hockey team that couldn't wear jeans because their thighs were too big. Because they work out. I know, the Eric Hyden syndrome, for sure. He would talk yeah. about, again, I'm you know? dating myself. But yeah, he was on the worldwide stage saying, I can't buy jeans because my thighs are as big as watermelons and nothing fits them. Exactly. And so I think there's a massive, you know, market in athletes. You know, there I, I uh, lived with a guy at one point who was almost seven feet tall. He couldn't find jeans either because he's too tall. I am a firm believer in the idea that there are these different communities of people that we want to do the exact same process with. We want to say, okay, cool. What's wrong with your pants? Like, tell us. And, uh, <laughs> and I love that. That should be like the big question atop your, your site. What's yeah. wrong with your pants? Exactly. And, you know, we, we, and it extends outwards into everything. You know, we, we plan on going head to toe, you know, we want to have head to toe fashion and everything. We're not just, you know, aspiring to be a jeans uh, company forever. Uh, we want to be synonymous with people who listen and people who solve problems. You know, people come to me every day with, you know, the swimsuit industry doesn't work. The bra industry doesn't work. All these things, these products that I don't even use, but people now are kind of seeing us as, hey, these guys listened about the, the jeans. Maybe they'll listen about this. And that to me is where the narrative will shift. And that to me is where we have to shift that narrative in the sense of, look, we're the guys, give us ideas and we'll try and run with them. And there's kind of, uh, as far as the branding goes too, I mean, there's a bit of a punk rock edge to it. I mean, you have that, you know, uh, Marshall on your LinkedIn page, you have the the fake URL of fake pocket suck. And I like that. That's There's definitely an edge to that. And I think you, there is an attraction to to younger people who will definitely just look at this current system and say, why hasn't this always been in place? Let's talk about how slow the process is, because you, you make a point of saying, you're going to get great genes, you're going to wait for them a bit. But when you think about how insistent everybody is in our on-demand lifestyle, I think there's a lot of adverse effects of getting too used to an on-demand lifestyle. Like you can order a book with a click of a button or listen to whatever song you want in the world. There's a level of patience that's kind of eroding a bit because people are used to getting what they want when they want it. Do you think that 
advertising yourself as a more methodical approach is a counterbalance to that? Is, is there a bit of a wave back to let's just be normal about this kind of thing? I think it's going back, you know, we're trying to take it back even one step further and say to people, hey, you know how they made clothes in the olden days? Yeah, that's how we were going to do it. Uh, we, we've just taken the the ideology with people in, in educating the consumer on in the same way that, you know, I feel that say cars, you know, luxury car brands and craftsmen and artisan do. We s- straight up know, like not hiding it until checkout. We're saying, look, we are going to make these for you. In the same way that when people go to a dealership and they order a car and they pick the interior and they pick the packages and they do things, they know they're going to wait for that vehicle. And so we're kind of taking that same psychology and basically coupling it with this growing movement of, okay, I like being able to buy a $15 t-shirt the same day, but how is that being made and how is it $15? And people are starting to understand Like these are being pumped out of the worst factories on earth using the worst materials on earth. And I strongly believe that there's youngest laborers. Yeah, exactly. And I've seen some of it with my own eyes. We don't manufacture with a factory unless I've been there myself and I poke around every corner and look around every curtain and I show up unannounced so that they have no idea that they can't make everything look, you know, pretty and proper. And that's something that's at the core of what we're doing is look, you are getting the most ethically sustainably made jeans that we could possibly get you using material that other brands would make you pay three, $400 for. We're fitting them to your body based on technology that very few brands have. And in return, we need you to be patient. And how patient is that? Let's talk a bit about the process itself. You've mentioned you can go to the site, you can put in some measurements, you can pick a fabric. How many denims do you have to choose from? Our first launch is our soft launch. So we're picking, we're starting with one cut and a few different color options uh, with the Italian denim made in Italy. And eventually we're going to be able to offer some other fabrics at different price points because we want to continue to get more and more accessible. So right now the process is about six weeks. We're hoping to eventually get that down to about three weeks and potentially even faster in the future. We're going to do that by building data, uh, basically data systems to figure out, okay, cool. These are the sizes that we know consistently that are basically selling out. This is basically the range that we need to continue to develop and basically being prepared for those launches ahead of time. But for now, what we're doing is we're doing order windows. There's a limited number of manufacturing slots. So you come in, you pick the jeans that you want, you pick the the rise that you want, whether it's a high-waisted or kind of a standard, what you kind of see on like a men's jean, a standard rise. Uh, You pick your color and you take your sizing. And basically from there, once that order window closes, whether we sell out or seven days, those orders then go into production in Italy. It takes about five weeks to manufacture, and we're giving ourselves about a week to make sure that we can get them into people's hands. Yeah, and that's got to be a challenge, too, when you consider the challenges of shipping and the global hangover after COVID. And people are getting used to the delays they weren't necessarily used to before. Like There is a new level of patience that I think people are kind of grudgingly accepting it's the new normal, just like people are looking to see empty supermarket shelves every so often. And I mean, for whatever reason, I remember my Trader Joe's couldn't get a jar of mayonnaise for a month. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What kind of allowances do you need to put in place for returns? And how does that policy work? 
Yeah, I mean, returns are tricky. You know, they're tricky for every brand. Uh, but for us, they're particularly tricky because they're probably the least sustainable part. If you ship a package to someone across the world, they don't like it, they ship it back to you and you have to ship them another one. You've now basically 5X'd your carbon on what should have been one. So we're trying to develop, you know, to go along with this kind of new system, a new kind of return policy. And we are preparing for exchanges in the sense that, oops, okay, you got the wrong size. We're going to create an excess about 10 to 15% of all of the different sizes in case we do need to make those exchanges. But our return policy is going to be based on sizing accuracy. We have uh, multiple methods to size yourself. And in order to basically be qualified for our return policy, we ask you that you use two of them. So if you do your 3D imaging, we also ask that you answer a few different questions that we have in a sizing quiz that asks you about your fit preferences and a couple of different things. And then boom, you get the golden check mark. And if we are the ones that mess up, if it's our sizing algorithm that doesn't work and you get them and they don't fit, no problem, return them or exchange them, we can figure it out. If you rush through the process and, you know, it's ultimately you didn't take the sizing properly or you didn't follow our instructions, that's on you. And so we're trying to communicate that very clearly with people in the buying process. Like these are the steps that we need to basically have in terms of a guarantee. If there's a product defect or if there's anything like basically uh, to do with the quality of the product, that's on us 100% always. We're basically handling returns on a one-to-one -one human level. Tell us what's wrong. Let's figure it out. But our primary goal is to try and minimize returns, less so for the sake of funding and funds, and more so, you know, to try and make sure that we're keeping the carbon at the levels that we want them to be. So uh, have you had many problems? And how, if so, how do you resolve them? You know, the beautiful thing right now is I don't I don't feel like we're going to experience those problems early. Uh, it's something that at scale, we're absolutely going to have to invest in customer service divisions. We want to be known as a brand that has phenomenal customer service. It's very important to me. There's nothing that grinds my gears more than bad customer service. Uh, we're just lucky that right now we, there's a lot of empathy on the product and a lot of empathy behind the company and a lot of empathy behind the process. And I feel like, you know, we're going to we're going to bring people through the entire process. When it, we go into production, we're going to go to Italy and we're going to film the product in production. We're going to show people we're going to go live in the factories. We're going to show people where they're being distributed from. We're going to go to the rainforests where we're protecting the trees. We're going to go to the cotton fields and show them where the cotton is being grown. And, you know, our hope is, you know, basically to continue to feel that community aspect. If there's one or two things that are imperfect, you know, I'm, I have a pretty good feeling that right now people are going to go, ah, you know, I wish they were a little bit looser in the calf, but you know what, I get it. And if not, okay, we'll deal with it. But I think, you know, really we're bringing on some customer service people right now. The way that we're basically briefing them is, is listen in the same way that we're, we're trying to listen to people in the, in, in the product is listen to what's wrong and make a human decision. And ultimately that's not going to leave you know, a hundred percent satisfaction. I don't think customer service has a hundred percent satisfaction, but it's right. something that ultimately we're trying to, to invest in heavily, um, you know, at scale. Yeah. And that's something you have to have to prepare for because as your customer base expands, it by definition is just going to get a little weirder. 
<laughs> and, yeah. and that's why we're launching in batches because we have a hundred thousand people on this list. And we're like, man, if we go and do a hundred thousand orders right away, just who knows, they're not, not saying they're all going to convert, but if they <laughs> do, or even more than that, and we go from zero to a hundred thousand, uh, that's just not going to work. We are seven people right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you do is you, you build a weirdness questionnaire <laughs> exactly. and you figure, all right, we're going to prioritize you on this backup list by how unweird you are. If you can convey your normalcy, you get your genes first. <laughs> Let's also talk about sustainability. I know there's a really strong environmental aspect to your marketing and to your overall effort. You mentioned that returns are a real drag on that. And I saw some data on your website that kind of back up all this in terms of why these genes achieve what they do. But what are these genes achieving and how do you work that into your marketing? We accidentally stumbled upon an awesome partnership with, uh, with a group over in the UK called uh, OneTribe. Um, they're our carbon offsetting partner. Um, so as our, one of our primary focuses with them is um, you know, sending a section of our proceeds to help preserve rainforests around the world. And, and what they do is um, you know, they buy uh, land titles in the rainforest and uh, give them back to the indigenous communities that have the ancestral claim over that land so that they can be untouched. The, the ideology behind that is, you know, you see a lot of the plant a tree um, movements and the ideology behind that is that uh, this is, it's, it's much more of a significant and immediate carbon capture. Uh, when you plant a tree, you know, it takes 40, 60 years before, you know, it's a mature tree and it's really starting to capture, uh, you know, a significant portion of carbon if it ever makes it to that age. Now, these these trees that we're protecting are already capturing a ton of carbon. Um, they're already mature. And once the, that land title is given to those uh, that, that local tribe, um, it is forever untouchable. So no one can go in and log it. No one can go in and develop it. So that's a huge push um, we, we have working with them for uh, for this year. For every pair of jeans that we sell, we are protecting 75 trees. So basically, that's basically our, our goal is we're aiming to plant over a million trees within our first launch. Um, and so that's just the protection of those lands. Over a million trees live on those lands. They're sucking carbon out of the air as we speak. And that's basically, you know, our, our primary carbon offsetting. Within our manufacturing, we are working with a mill in Italy, considered the greenest mill on the blue planet. That is their slogan. Um, they're a family-owned business um, called Condiani. They've been producing some of the world's top denim for almost 100 years. Our Denim Choice, which uh, we're still in the process of confirming. All of them are sustainable. The one that we really want to be working with, um, it's actually the world's first biodegradable denim. So at the end of the, the life cycle of the product, you could literally chuck it in your back garden and it takes about 30 days to break down. And those genes, uh, you know, of course, without the, the metal pieces in them, if you're to remove the metal pieces, those genes would be absorbed into the soil. And so we're very concerned about something that a lot of companies don't really consider. And that's the end of life of the product. You can have an amazing manufacturing process, which we're very fortunate to have. You can work with factories that prioritize green energy. You can work with shipping partners that prioritize, you know, green energy. You can try and get the product as close to your target market as possible. But the reality is that if it still ends up in the landfill, it still ends up in the landfill and stretch denim, which people don't understand. The thing that makes it stretchy typically is plastic. You know, it's, it, they are petrochemical polyesters that, you know, make it pliable like that. So at the end of the day, whether that 
product ends up in a landfill or not, it doesn't even ultimately matter how sustainable the production was. And that's what we're trying to eliminate is, look, every single part of this life cycle is sustainable as it can possibly be. And our partners at One Tribe are basically making sure that we are tracing that. And so on the product, it's almost going to look like a little nutrition tag. You're going to see every single step and the amount of carbon that is released at every single one of those steps, and then how much carbon is being saved by those trees that you are protecting. So you can see the net, uh, the, the, basically the net effect. And as a result of that, we just received our carbon neutral status from one tribe. They took all of our numbers and they basically said, yep, if you basically plant these trees, this launch will be carbon neutral. So we're the world's first carbon neutral denim company right now. Hey, congratulations. That's uh, that's a, an interesting, unique approach to take. So as we wind down here a bit, let's talk a bit about the financials in terms of what can people expect to pay for a pair of these jeans? What kind of margins are you working at? And uh, what kind of revenue projections have you given people who are looking to understand what the ROI will be? Uh, yeah, so we are selling them at $99. Our goal is to make sure that these were under $100. Uh, like we mentioned previously, one of our primary goals is to continue to expand our manufacturing network so that we can even have pairs at lower prices. So we're looking right now about working uh, work, uh, with a potential factory in Turkey, a very, very sustainable manufacturer as well. And they have uh, different materials that are a little bit cheaper because the Italian material is quite expensive. The projection right now is uh, we're aiming for about 20,000 units launch one. So basically $2 million revenue first launch. We are projecting and aiming for between seven and $12 million uh, year one. We're aiming for sustainable growth is, is something that's very important. And I think that goes hand in hand with environmental sustainability. We are both not the type of founders that want to ever copycat the mass hyper growth startup, raise $100 million, hire 800 people, hope it works, burn $2 for every dollar that you make. And then, oh, no, I'm crying on LinkedIn because I have to lay off 700 people. Oh, no. How could I have ever seen this coming? No, it's BS. We want sustainable growth. We want achievable growth and launch to launch. We know that we can achieve that. And so we're setting our sights on making sure that we just raised a pre-seed round at 3.5 million. We're setting our sights on achieving a 15 to $20 million seed valuation, and then aiming to basically try and triple that going into a series A and hope that we can be in the 60 to hundred million range by the time we hit series A. And that's really uh, our, our primary goal in terms of getting the, the, our current investors um, return on their investment um, and ultimately trying to make sure that we can see that sustainable growth. That's growth that we see in the next couple of years. When you think about the stricture of your business model, the mission statement, and the specific standards that you hold yourself to, to the extent you even think about it now, how do you think this might affect the potential exit? Good question. Um, I mean, I don't think it'll be long before people are knocking on the door. I think there's a lot of people watching to see if we can convert this crazy marketing push that we've had. You know, I know from the people that are viewing our LinkedIn profiles and from the people who are talking in the background, people who just sent me straight up emails. There are venture capital firms, there are retail groups, there are distributors that are looking at this going, holy crap, I want a piece of that. You know, for us, they would have to be conditional exits. And that's something that I've been responding to with everyone is like, look, if we are to ever sell this brand, we are not basically wavering on the following things. 
And so if you are a large conglomerate and you want to absorb us because you you strongly believe that you have an opportunity to bring this into, you know, to the next level, we're open to that conversation. But they will it has to come with our conditions and it has to make sure that the core ideology and the core kind of foundation of the sustainability of the brand and the inclusivity of the brand never wavers. And so we're hoping that the explosive growth, you know, it speaks for itself. Um, we don't want to sell, you know, that's not our primary goal is to grow and sell. We want to grow and, and make as much good in the world and try and, you know, take some serious market share in, in a very large industry, but it is definitely potentially, and it's in the back of our heads for sure. But that's something that, you know, would have to be on the table is these are our terms, these are our conditions and the, and the quality never changes. I'm glad you're going to hold your ground because as you're probably aware, acquirers are all about margins. You know, we like your margin, but we we'd like you to double it, please. Uh, exactly. So I really appreciate the time talking about this. Tell us about where your crowdfund sits on the web. Tell us about uh, where we can find out more about Slow Jeans and anything else you'd like our listeners, our investors to know. Probably by the time this is up, our first seed round will be, or sorry, pre-seed round will be closed, but look for another round on WeFunder in the future. You can find out more at slowjeans.co, so slowjeans.co. You can also find me on TikTok. That's probably where you're going to find the most up-to-date information. So you can join our wait list and you can join our newsletter on our website. And Marshall over here puts out a beautiful newsletter every week and gets, uh, you know, all of that information in front of everyone's eyes. So learn more at slowjeans.co. Follow me on TikTok, follow us on Instagram, and uh, you will find out uh, everything up to date. It actually is a waitlist model. We're not just collecting emails saying, yeah, I know everyone, yay, you know, it's a free-for-all. There is actually a reason that we are trying to build a waitlist. <laughs> That's so, what this yeah. world needs, more free-for-alls. Not. Yeah, no, it's, uh, we live enough of them every minute of every day. <laughs> <laughs> Imposing a little bit of structure on the world, one pair of pants at a time. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Thank you to uh, CEO Christian Hansen and CMO Marshall Conley of Slow Jeans. And I wish you all the best of luck. Thanks for speaking with me today. Thanks very much, Doug. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Doug. You've been listening to the successfully funded podcast brought to you by Kiwi Tech. And I have been your host, Doug French. Thank you again to Christian and Marshall. And we'll see you next time with another discussion about people doing right and uh, making jeans that uh, fit your ass. <laughs> I don't have a sign off, so I never know what to say. I just figure out what's going to come out. Um, yeah, so tune in next time for another story about how people are disrupting things that need disrupting. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>